uh, by way of introduction, we are in the most intensive chapters in Romans. Now, I thought Romans chapter 6 and 7 was tough. Uh, chapter 8 was such a, a refreshing, just it was just truth upon truth and uh, awesome blessing upon blessing. But chapter 9, 10, 11 are intense. And um, uh, they're about a nation of people called Israel. And I'm, su hey, I'm surprised. I'm amazed that most people don't care about Israel. When it's kind of funny, that book mentions Israel thousands of times. Uh, people don't read their Bible and learn about the nation of Israel. Oh, they learn about history, and they, but they don't see God's hand with that people called Israel. And it's kind of funny. You'll read a book, you know, a children's story book and stuff, and they'll say Israel and say Israel, but they'll never realize that was a real people. Those are That's a group of people. That's a nation. Now, they're messed up just like Ireland is. But it is, it is the focus of God to tell us about a people that God has used to save the world. Now, Israel doesn't save anybody, but it's through Israel that God gave us the book that you're reading. It's through Israel that God gave us the Messiah. All right? The laws of God and everything came through Israel. So us non-Jews had better learn from the Jews how to follow God and how to trust God. Because for all of their mess up, we can learn from them. So Paul refers to Israel as God's choice nation. I don't know, I've gone over and over it in chapter 9. He says they, they, they're the adopted nation out of all the world. They are through, through Israel. God's done uh, amazing things for the rest of the world. But one of the things that people forget is that Israel's failures don't cancel his promises. So that ought to be good news to you and me <laughs> that God makes promises to me. And if I don't live up to his expectations or even my own expectation, God's promises still stay true. Okay? You say, I wonder if I can lose your sal I wonder if I can lose my salvation. Well, you better learn from Israel. You can't, because God's promises are secure. Now there are covenants that were conditional, but we're not talking about covenants, we're talking about promises. See, a promise is God's commitment to you. A commandment is God's expectation of me. And I can fail the commandment, but God can't fail his promise. Nod your head. All right. So the fact that Israel failed didn't cancel the promises and never changed God's mind about Israel, even though Israel, man, God said, I should destroy you. But he didn't. Now, uh, Israel as a nation one day will receive their Messiah, even though for the last 2000 years they are in gross spiritual apostasy. And it is a shame to me. It's a sad thing to me is that Christianity is following the same path. Follow me for a minute. Israel rejected Jesus Christ, set up their own righteousness, and Christians are doing the same thing today. They don't like this Bible. They don't like God's ways, and so they set up their own churches. I mean, there's 57,000 types of churches out there because nobody wants to believe the Bible. And that's just, that's just revelation to us that, you know what? Uh, people fall away. Churches move away. And God's got a plan, and he will save his people, even though, talking about the Jews, even though they're in gross spiritual apostasy. Why? Why, why can I say that? How is it possible that, that the Israel that is very apostate, very wicked over there, if you want to know their lifestyle, it'd make you sick. But how is God ever going to save them? It's because he's in charge. Man can't do it. If I went over there and I preached and I tried to convince them they're living in sin, which is a good thing to try to do. And if I try to change their lifestyle, so I will fail, but God will not fail. So <clears throat> we've done all that, and we talked about the sovereignty of God. 
last week was sort of, it opened up this, this concept of the sovereignty of God. And I want to just give you some scriptural truths and scriptural answers about the sovereignty of God before we get into the rest of Romans chapter 9. Because it's a very important subject about the sovereignty of God. It is a foundational doctrine <clears throat> to believe the power of God. Uh, if, if, if God has the power to create this entire universe, and he does, then he has all power. If this entire universe came by accident, then God is dead. But if this universe is created, then he is powerful, amen? He actually has all power. There's no power greater than him. There's nobody can stand up to him. Nobody can defeat him. He is all powerful. That means he controls the wind and the waves. That means he controls the storms and the good days. That means he controls the troubles and the blessings. He's in control. Uh, he's guiding the motions of planets and stars. All the laws of physics are subject to him. That's how come God can step in and change things. Jesus, who's the creator of everything, can walk on water because he's the God of the laws of physics. Are you with me? He is all powerful. Now that sovereignty means that he can carry out his own will. He has the authority to do as he pleases. You ever think if you had a billion euros, what you would do? Well, you wouldn't be living in a two-room flat, probably. And you would, if you wanted to, you'd go on holiday every weekend. You'd do as you please. Are you with me? The more power you have, the more you do what you want. That's why we shouldn't give the people down at the forecourts all that power. There is, there is too much power that people take into their hands because absolute power seems to always corrupt people. But God has absolute power to do as he please, and thank God he's good. There's something that we can trust, and that is, even though he can do whatever he wants, he cannot lie, he cannot break a promise, he cannot fail, and he can't go against his own nature, which is good. So, thankfully, God is absolutely good, and even though he controls wind and water and waves and storms, he does not control you. Do you know what I need to submit myself to? The Bible says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Now, why does it tell me that if he's in control? Because I still have this free will, which gets me in trouble. Amen. So God's sovereignty stops at my will. And that's grace. Because otherwise, if, if I were God, I'd be forcing every one of you to do right. <laughs> and God says, I'm going to teach you, show you. I'm going to create problems around you, but I will not force you. And that's a revelation to some people. The sovereignty stops at the will and the heart of a man and of a woman. You say, well, how does he maintain control? <laughs> because he works with our frailty. He actually knows that we're but dust. And in spite of my constant failures, he still accomplishes his perfect will. That's God. Does everybody, are you with me? Nobody can take a mess like you and me and still make something come out good, except God. You see, when I look at something, if I was in charge of a factory and everybody on the factory floor keeps breaking things coming down the line, I'd give up and shut the, shut the shop down. I say, we can't do this. God accepts every broken piece and still makes it beautiful in the end. So sovereignty of God doesn't make you do and make you perfect. He takes whatever you mess up and still says, if you give it to me, I'll make it beautiful. I'll make it last. 
he'll accomplish his perfect will. That is what people forget about the sovereignty of God. Now, if God is sovereign, I told you I would answer some of the questions that go with that. First thing about the sovereignty of God is why pray? You ever thought about that? You know why we're supposed to pray? Because God tells us we can. He actually asks us to ask what we will. Go to John chapter 15, Gospel of John chapter 15 and verse 7. See, if God is running everything, why would he listen to me? Why, why would I? I mean, look, if I'm driving down the road and, and I've got a four-year-old grandson who says, Granddaddy, turn left. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm driving, amen. Stop. I want to get an ice cream or whatever. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be giving in to... Uh, I'm, I'm tired. I want to get out. No, no, we're getting somewhere. But I'm not God. God can, he actually invites us to pray. Look at John 15, 7. It says this, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what? What are the next two words? Say them. What ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Do you realize that God does what you want sometimes? That ought to terrify you. Honestly, we're invited to ask for what we want. Matthew chapter 7, don't go there. It says, ask and it shall be given unto you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh, receiveth. He that seeketh, findeth. He that knocketh, it shall be opened. What man is there of you whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then being evil, that's us. If you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more so your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real plain for just, just a second here. But if you get nothing else out of this message, you better get it. And that is God invites us to pray and we don't. We are missing the greatest gift God ever gave us next to Jesus Christ. And that is you need something, ask. God's not giving us the illusion of an answer. He's actually giving us some things that we've actually asked for, so be careful what you ask for. And be glad when he says no. Amen? Because prayer is part of worship. Prayer is you. I'm not talking about praying while you're driving. I'm not talking about praying just while you're getting your food. I'm not talking about just quickly saying a prayer. I'm talking about taking time, stopping, shutting the world out, and just spending time. Time with God. Why? If he's, if he's God, if he's sovereign, why does he need me? Well, he doesn't. But he wants you. And he invites you. And he says, spend time with me. You got something you need? Ask. You know why most of us don't have what we need? Because we don't ask. You have not, James says, because you ask not. You know what prayer will do to you? With, a, with an almighty, sovereign God, it will mature you. Four reasons why it will mature you. Number one, because you'll learn how to pray. You'll learn to ask. My children had to learn to ask, Daddy. Amen? Not tell, Daddy. Daddy, what this? <laughs> you ain't getting it. <laughs> Daddy, may I have this, please? We'll think about it. Amen? See, it teaches Christians not to demand and not to manipulate, not to bargain, but to ask. That's what prayer does. Secondly, it, it, it teaches to believe. When I ask, I need to believe. I need to learn to just trust that he 
knows what's best. Third, I need to learn to wait. You know what prayer is? It's not getting what you want when you want it. It's asking and then waiting sometimes for years. And you learn to ask, you learn to accept God's will. And when you don't pray and when you're too busy to pray and when prayer is a bother to you and when it just doesn't come natural to you, you're missing the greatest the greatest secret to thriving as a Christian. Because an almighty sovereign God invites us to spend time with him and get what we need. Second question to ask is, how do I pray? Well, I tell you, I pray like Jesus did. You know what it says there in Mark chapter 1? He says, he, every morning, a great while before dawn, he went out to a place and he prayed. I mean, he did it every day. You know, uh, Jesus asked his heavenly father for everything he needed. There was a time when um, uh, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and the pressure was coming upon him and it seemed like the devil was going to kill him right there in the garden. You know what Jesus prayed? Father, take this from me. But if not, thy will be done. He was praying when he was in trouble and the pressure was on. You ought to pray like Jesus did. How do you pray? Like Jesus did. You know, when he was hanging on that cross, I mean, greatest examples of prayer, he's hanging on that cross, the very men that had crucified him, the very people that had cried out for him to be murdered and tortured, he said, Father, forgive them. He's asking, isn't he? Forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus said you ought to pray like him. Much of what we need is not given to us because we don't ask. He's had a miserable week. Did you pray? Did you ask not just for a better week, but for wisdom? and for strength, and for courage, and for grace to get through the week. You might change your attitude when you start to see, God got me through this week, <laughs> instead of, man, what a miserable week. How do you pray? Imperfectly. Don't you dare worry about praying like anybody else. Don't worry about having the fancy prayers. Don't even worry about, sometimes you don't even have to pray. You know what the Holy Spirit does? He interprets our groanings. And you're just like, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to handle, I don't know how to breathe, God. And the Lord says, keep talking. <laughs> just pray imperfectly. Just, just do it is the point. If God is all powerful, why don't you talk to him and do it constantly? Don't you wait till Sunday or this week or say, well, I haven't prayed in three weeks. Okay, we'll get started and do it consistently, constantly. Jesus said, he spoke this parable about a widow woman. He said that men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up. How do you pray? Do it real. Just do it constantly, imperfectly, but do it like Jesus. He's our example. Does God choose some people to be saved and some to damn? I mean, if God's all-powerful, does he just sit up there in heaven and choose and go, mm, don't like him, don't like her, I like him, yeah, we'll keep you. Is that how God is? Absolutely not. God invites all men and women to repent, and then he Expects all men and women to respond or else they're lost. Take your Bible. You're in John. Go to the right. Go to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 3. <clears throat> Hebrews 2 and verse 3. You know why most people go to hell? I know. They're all sinner, wicked. Yeah, but not really is the problem. The problem is this. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, how shall we escape the damnation of hell if we neglect? I, if I choose to put off getting saved, you'll go straight to hell when you die. You say, what do I have to do to go to hell? Nothing. 
What sin will send me to hell? The fact you haven't believed. The fact you haven't turned and said, I need to be saved. As long as you neglect that, that's your choice. You're not going to escape the wrath of God down the future, man. Go to Matthew chapter, uh, let me just quote it for you. Matthew eleven twenty one. you know what Jesus says? Come unto me. Are you that labor and heavy laden? Why does he invite us if we don't have a free will? See, we're talking to the choir. I'm not sure I'm talking to the choir. Some people watch so many YouTubes, they think that we're just robots and God just does what he wants and we just go our, our way because God's foreordained us. No. You know what God does? He works with everything. And yes, he puts pressure on us. And yes, he pushes us and sometimes pulls us back. But in the end, it's your choice whether you follow him or not. You say, why is so-and-so? They quit coming to church. They got mad at the preacher. They didn't like the preaching. They didn't like the King James Bible. They didn't like the hymns. And, and they stopped coming to church, and they're at home right now. They made a choice, didn't they? That's their choice. God's not going to come in there and just force them to come back. I wish they would, because <laughs> I know it's a whole lot better to follow and do right. But that's their choice. John chapter 3, Jesus says, go to John chapter 3. In verse 14, John 3, 14. Gospel of John 3, 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now stop there for a second. Just realize Jesus is God's elect. Jesus is doing Perfectly the will of God. He is the way to be saved. He must be lifted up on that cross. Me? I've got to choose. Look at verse 15. Here's my choice. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Not so that only a few get saved, but that anybody can get saved. Verse 16. For God so loved how many people? That's a lot of people. That he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's up to you. It's absolutely up to you. First Timothy chapter 2, to the right. First Timothy 2. First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. Just before Hebrews. First Timothy 2 and verse 3. And Declan, if you turn off that heater there. First Timothy 2 and verse 3. No? Yeah, I'm in 2 Timothy. I was wondering where I was. First Timothy 2, 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have a few men to be saved. Is that what it says? How many people does God want saved? Who will have all men to be saved and come into the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself a ransom for all. So who did he die for? Absolutely everybody who's ever lived and breathed on this planet. How many got saved? Only those who believed it. It's that, it's that simple. First uh, John 2, we won't go there. This is my little children. These things write unto you that ye sin not. I mean, that's why the Bible was written, to keep me from sin. And if any man sin... We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins. He's the full payment of our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 
So people who believe in predestination to heaven or hell do only because they've used selected scriptures and they ignore the rest. I believe the entire Bible. Both, I believe in both the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. That makes me strange. <laughs> and that makes me a Bible believer. And I hope you are too. So let me ask you another question about if God is sovereign, how am I supposed to look at life? How do, how do I look at life? I mean, if God's already figured everything out, uh, aren't we just living in a matrix? Aren't we just living where fate is in charge? No. You know, we live, we live in a miracle. You ever think about it? None of us are purposeless or accidents or waiting to become worm food. That's not why we're here. I know we're all going to die. They're going to lie us in the grave or some of you want to get burned up. I don't know whatever you want to do. But basically, in the end, we're worm food. But that's not why you were made. Our time, our place in history is God's gift to us. I wouldn't want to live back in 1820, would you? Huh? You think about that for You want to live in 1690 and all the wars going on, the War of the Roses and the 30-year war and the 100-year war. I mean, nobody lived beyond 30 years old back then. I mean, we're living in an interesting time. God gave you the gift of being born now. In the body you're in, in the country you're in, that's God's gift. That's how you look at life. And we are God's gift to the world. I don't care who you are or how unintelligent you may be or how little money you have. God made you to be a blessing. We are a gift to others. How am I supposed to look at a life? Like it's a gift. You know what history is? You ever think of that word? History looks like the sequence of events <laughs> that lead to nowhere. Not at all. History needs to be understood as his story. It is God working out all the events to a planned end. Amen. And it will come to pass. That's how we look at it. God says we have opportunities to change the destiny of our world. Do not. I know we're in the last days. But one thing I know about future uh, and eschatology and all the stuff about the future. When my people, God says, when we humble ourselves and when we pray and we seek his face, God says, I'll change history. I'll delay my coming. I'll, I'll, I'll give somebody another chance. Don't, don't you write it up. Well, I guess they'll never get saved. As long as they're breathing, there's hope. Amen. Are you with me? Do not, just because God is sovereign does not mean that we cannot be part of history, that we can actually get on the right side of what God is doing and actually make a change. Paul sent, uh, God, Jesus sent Paul out to preach and to open people's eyes, to turn them from darkness to light that they might be saved. Every time I give the gospel out, I can change somebody's destiny. Amen? Amen. How do I look at life? As, a, as an opportunity to actually make a difference, to actually have a, 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 an effect instead of letting the world destroy. I want to see God build. How do I make decisions then? Well, start making them. You know what I find? I find most young men today just sitting there playing Xbox for 14 hours and not making a single decision in their life. Amen. I'm watching young ladies. The only decision they make is what to wear out on Friday night and Saturday night. That's the only decision they make. 
The rest of the time, they hate life. They're going through the motions. They don't make any decisions to stay right and stay pure until marriage. They don't make any decisions to make their life a blessing or to prepare for something bigger than just themselves. Make some decisions. You make decisions because God makes you responsible. When I was growing up, my dad expected me to make right decisions. Amen. He didn't make them all for me. There are times where he said, you choose. And I had to live with the consequences. Amen. How do you make decisions? Like they matter. And that's why you ask God for wisdom. The Bible says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And God gives it to you liberally. Can I ruin God's will? I mean, uh, can I just go off into sin and God's still going to just make everything turn out right? Well, oh, take that step back. You can ruin God's will for your life in a small way. If you're saved, his will is to get you to heaven. Amen, amen. But did you know if God's will is for all men to be saved, and if you neglect it, you have ruined God's will, and you can go straight to hell. Did you know God's will for most men is to be married? Amen? Not your head, gentlemen. It was God's will for you to get married. Can you marry the wrong one? Don't, don't shake your head. Don't nod your head. Just stay very still, men. Stay very still if you want to live. Can you marry the wrong one? Yes, you can. And you have to live with it. Can you ruin your testimony so bad that God can't use you as a preacher, as a pastor? Yes, you can ruin. And God's will was for you to be a pastor. Amen. You can ruin God's will. Does that stop you from being a witness down the line and still being able to be a soul winner or stuff and give people the gospel? Yes. But you can ruin God's will. You better take it serious how you live and how you make choices. Young and old. Why didn't God just put good people into power? <laughs> you ever ask that? If God's sovereign, if he's in charge of putting people in power, why didn't he put God good people in power? You ever think that? I'll tell you why. Because we get what we deserve. We reap what we sow. You want to live like the devil and want a good leader? It doesn't match. You want to live right? God will give you right leadership. Remember a guy named King Saul. We not only get what we deserve when it comes to leadership, but we get what we want. You know why uh, Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin are in power? Because we elected them. When I say we, I mean collectively, I didn't. <laughs> but generally, Ireland wanted that leadership. Amen? And you get what you want. Better be careful what you want. Better be careful that your life is not lived based on, well, I like this guy. Oh, he, he gives me my some new entitlements. Oh, she's a good, good talker. Oh, she just makes me. You better watch and say, are they doing the right thing? So if God is sovereign, I just want to show you there's some questions that are answered based on the sovereignty of God and my responsibility to have the right choice in my free will. So let's go to Romans chapter 2 now. Romans chapter 9, verse 22. Romans chapter 9. Because God, in his sovereign will, in his sovereign power, he opened up salvation to the Gentiles. Look at this, Romans chapter 9, verse 22 to 24. It says, what if God, what if, this is a great what if. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, what if he endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath fitted, for fitted to destruction? And that he might make known the riches of his glory on another vessel, on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, 
even us. Look at how he talks about the vessels of mercy are us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. So what if God is wanting to, and he's ready to show his wrath, man. And I believe it, it, it's only by the mercy of God he hasn't shown it on this world like he should. What if God is ready to show his wrath, yet he puts up with wicked men and women like Pharaoh, people who've earned his wrath. What if he has done that so that he could show kindness to not only Jewish people, but also to Gentiles? Bam, man. What if that's been God's plan all along, that he's been kind first to the Egyptians? Now he does ultimately. I mean, he, he went 10 times and says, you're going to let him go? And Pharaoh says, I will not let them go. You're going to let him go? I mean, that's kindness. Why is God being nice to a vessel that's fitted, prepared to be destroyed because of his rebellion? And God kept giving him chance after chance after chance. Why is God nice to him? So he can be nice to Israel and then set him free. Why is God so interested in the Jews? So he can save the Gentiles. You got to understand. I, you got to understand. You can't understand <laughs> the incredible, awesome wisdom of God. When God is kind to you, it's because he's been kind to somebody who also didn't deserve it. Amen. So look at verse 25. Oh, well, let me take you back for a second. This thing of, uh, did I go all this way? Yeah. Um, go to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah, we'll come back to Romans in a moment. Jeremiah. So if you get to Isaiah, go to the right and find Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 31, you ought to mark this with a star in your Bible, get your attention. This is called the New Covenant. Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a, you ought to circle those words, a new covenant with the house of who? And with the house of? Judah, the two had been separated, but God says, I'm going to make a covenant with both of them again. Verse 32, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. That old covenant at Mount Sinai, which my covenant, they break. They constantly broke God's rules and God's commandments. Although I was a husband unto them, saith the Lord, they're like an unfaithful wife. Verse 33 but this shall be the future covenant at that point that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law not in stone, but in their inward parts, write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive. Here's the point. The second commandment, the first, sorry, the first covenant was do, do, do. I expect, I expect, I expect. And that was necessary. The second commandment is I forgive. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. This new commandment is, is a heart commandment, a relationship where they all would know God. It is a commandment, I'm sorry, a covenant based on forgiveness. That's what Jesus was referring to when we had the Lord's Supper last week. He said, this cup is the New Testament. 
in my blood. It's paid for by my blood. This will buy your pardon. This will bring the forgiveness so that there's one, there's one thing that God cannot do. He cannot remember my sins anymore. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> now, it's not because he got old and senile and he just can't, but he chose to forget. And when he forgets, he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our iniquities from us, that's the new covenant. Amen. So Paul's asking a what if because he's trying to build to a thing. He says, Jews, do you understand? And they all knew it. Jesus had brought them into the new covenant, but they had not <laughs> realized the Gentiles snuck in. That's us. So he says, verse 25, back in Romans now. Romans 9, 25. Kind of have to hold your place here. <clears throat> so he says in verse 24, the vessels of mercy, even us, verse 24, whom he hath called out of the Jews only, but also the Gentiles. What if God was doing this? And that's been his plan. Verse 25, and then he shows some scripture for it. He says, as he, God saith also in O.C., that's the Greek way of saying Hosea. And he says this, I will call them my people, which were not my people. And I will call her beloved which was not beloved. Um, I've got to go as far as I want here. Verse 26 as well. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. So I need you to go to um, Hosea, and you'll see this. You're in Romans. Hosea is a little book just before Matthew. Why don't you see where he's quoting from? And keep going backwards from Matthew until you find a little book called Hosea. It's right after Daniel, if you get that far. Hosea chapter 2 and verse 23. And Hosea 2.23, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. Kind of an unusual, but I'm going to plant again my people. Talking about her being Israel. And I will have mercy. Not uh, He's not talking about Israel now. He's talking about, watch this, a different people. And I will have mercy on her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which were not my people. I'm going to talk to people who are not the Jews. He's going to say, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. You ever wonder who we worship and who he, what he thinks of us? I'm a Gentile. I'm a, what the Bible calls a dumb dog, pagan, idolatrous Gentile. I worship anything that will give me money, anything that will give me attention, anything that will make me feel important. That's what us Gentiles worship. And God says, I'm going to make you my people. And that is the revelation that he's giving that not Non-Jews, by faith, can call themselves now. If I can get this. You want to push it forward? I don't know what's wrong, John. The people of God. I mean, that's what Israel is called, and we can call ourselves God's people. You know who I'm meeting with this morning? The people of God. Amen. Amen. You, may be, you may be from a foreign country, but you're in the family. Amen. Uh, beloved of God. God says, I'll call her that was not beloved, 
beloved. You understand that word? That beloved is a very intimate term you only say to your wife or you say to your husband. You just don't go say it, hey, beloved, to your neighbor. <laughs> Doesn't work. But God brings and says, I'm I, a Gentile is beloved of God. Uh, we can call ourselves the children of the living God. When you get born again, I became a child of God. I can claim that. And us non-Jews can, can claim to be blessed with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, just like the Jews were. So when the Bible says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, he means me. When it says whosoever, it means Jew or Gentile, American or Irish. I don't care how wicked or how righteous you may think you are. You need to be born again, and you can be. And you can be God's people. So the truth that Paul's getting at in Romans chapter 9 is that the gospel, go to, go to Isaiah 42. Let me take you three verses here. That the gospel invitation is to Gentiles. Isaiah 42. You did bring your Bible this morning, didn't you? So, Pastor, I just, refer, I just prefer you just to speak. Well, you're in the wrong church because I want you to learn. I want you to see with your own eyes. Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Watch this. This is speaking of the Messiah. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold my servant. That's Jesus. Whom I uphold. This is God talking. Mine what? See, now the Jews will say we're the elect. Well, they kind of are, but not here. Mine elect, that's Jesus. Jesus is God's elect, in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment. We'd say it this way. We bring forth justice to who? And righteousness to the Gentiles. That's crazy. Keep going. I want to go down to verse 4. He, Jesus, shall not cry. He's not going to whimper, not going to complain, nor lift up, his, nor cause his voice to be heard in the streets. You find him when he's being crucified. Do you ever hear him screaming out, crying out, saying, I want to get you? He doesn't cry out in the pain. He's silent the entire time, isn't he? Because it's prophesied. He will not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break. You try to walk on a mat that's got a tender bruised reed, you're going to crush him. It says he will not break them, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment unto truth. He shall not, oh, you ought to circle those words. He shall not fail, nor be discouraged till he have set judgment, where? In the earth. And the Irish shall wait for his law. Oh, the isles, same thing. All the islands shall hear and wait for his law. Look at verse 6, 42, verse 6. The Lord have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee, talking about Jesus, for a covenant of the people, for a life of the. Man, we're invited, man. <laughs> Go to chapter 49 and verse 6, still in Isaiah 49 and verse 6. Jesus tells a, a, a parable, a story that teaches a lesson of, uh, of a man who's got a. a uh, um, a dinner prepared. It's huge. It's it's laid out. It's expecting hundreds and hundreds of, vic of, of victims. <laughs> of <laughs> depends on who's fixing the dinner, right? Uh, of, of of visitors and people to come. And he sends out a messenger to go. Go tell those who are invited to come. And then he goes, and they all say an excuse, don't they? One says, "I just bought a cow." 
Okay. <laughs> I just bought some land. Yeah, okay. I just married a wife. I guess that was the only excuse invalid. Amen. Can't come. And so none of them come. And you know what the, the man says to his servant? He says, go out to the highways and hedges and just get anybody. Where the anybody that's been invited? God first went to the Jews. Yeah, they pretty well rejected Jesus. Some of them got saved, but they pretty well rejected him. But look at verse nine, uh, chapter 49, verse 6. And he said, it is, it is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, yes, and to restore the preserved of Israel. But I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles that thou, Jesus, mayest be my salvation unto the ends of the earth. So you think about it. June, I don't know, back March 1980, I'm sitting at a coffee shop and a woman pulls out a gospel track and hands me a gospel track and tells me I need to be born again. How'd that happen? Because somebody witnessed to her and well, dealt with a very hard-nosed, hard-headed Catholic woman who did not want to get saved, one looking for God, and yet convinced her of the gospel and she got saved. How did that happen? Because the person who won her to Christ was, was an ex-priest who had somebody kept hammering him saying, what are you going to do? When are you going to get saved? The Bible says you must be born again. Don't leave it to us. You know, and he kept being hammered by somebody. Bart, Bart, uh, Bart Brewer is his name. Kept being hammered over and over by one of the people he was ministering to who got saved and won him to Christ. How did that happen? All throughout history, somebody kept taking the gospel into a further place. And it ended up in Texas. And then a Texan moved here. Doesn't God have a great sense of humor? Gentiles, get in. And then we're a miracle, ladies and gentlemen. That's what Paul's writing about. He's telling the Jews, <laughs> this has been in plan the whole time. So let's talk about the remnant. Let's, let's try to finish up here in John chapter 9. We'll get to the, to the main point. John chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. So it doesn't matter how numerous they are or how few they are, there will always be people who get saved who are Jews. Verse 28, for he will finish his work and cut it short in righteousness because a short work will the Lord make in the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth, we'd say the Lord of hosts, the Lord of everything. If he had not left us a seed, we had been as Sodom and been like unto Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? They were burnt up. They are no longer. And if it weren't for a commitment that God made to Abraham, Israel would have been burned up a long time ago. In verse 28, 29, I got that far. Okay, so there's always been a remnant um, there's, uh, there's always been a group of people who believe like Abraham did. Um, according to the Bible, there will always be people, Jews, who hear the gospel and believe it. You, you, you wouldn't believe it. You wouldn't think it. But there are a lot of believing Jews. They're called Messianic Jews. They don't believe everything like we do. Don't understand. They don't try to understand at all. But they get saved. There are what are called completed Jews. There are people who get saved coming out of crazy apostasy and crazy religion and god the bible says there always will be jews who hear the gospel and believe it proving that the jewish people are not gone uh 
it is it is because of God's commitment to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that Israel has not been destroyed. Uh, one day they will all turn to Christ. Go back to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah 30. Jeremiah chapter 30 in verse 3. We'll read down to verse 11. Jeremiah 30 verse 3. For lo, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity of my people, Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. For thus saith the Lord, we have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Hmm. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. I've never seen that. But Jeremiah is saying, when he's looking out in the future, he says, it looks like all these men are pregnant and having babies. He says, ask now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore, why do I see every man with his hands on his loins? as a woman in travail, and all faces are turned into paleness. Alas, why? For that day, there's a day coming, is great, so that none is like it. Jesus said there's coming a day that is worse than all of history. It has not happened yet. People think that we've had the tribulation since 70, 80 and all this stuff. We have not. We haven't seen anything yet. It says, is this even the time of whose trouble? It's not us. It's not Christians. It's not Gentiles. It's not Dublin. It's not Cork. It's Jacob's trouble. It's he's in trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his, his, in the context here is the Antichrist, his yoke from off thy neck, and I will burst thy bonds. I'll break you free, and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him. But they, Israel, shall serve the Lord their God, and who else? David, their king, whom I will raise up unto them. David's not going to be king over Dublin. He's going to be king again over Jerusalem. There's Somebody says, all this happened at 70 AD. I have not met David yet. Have you? Nope. Verse 10. Therefore fear thou not, O my servant Jacob. Jacob's the other word for Israel. Saith the Lord, neither be dismayed, O Israel. For lo, I will save thee from afar and thy seed from the land of their captivity, and Jacob shall return and shall be in rest and be quiet, and none shall make him afraid. You know what he's referring to? Armageddon. He's referring to the time of the tribulation when God will break Israel and get them to convert. Verse 11, for I am with thee, saith the Lord, to save thee. Though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee. Wait a minute. He got rid of the Moabites, got rid of the Amorites, got rid of the termites. But he cannot get rid of Israel. He said, though I make a full end of all nations, whither I have scattered thee, yet will I not make a full end of thee, but I will correct thee in measure and will not leave thee altogether unpunished. I'll have to correct you, but I will not. I'll not abandon you and I will not leave you. That's spoken to unbelieving Jews. So now I need you to go to back to Romans chapter 9, and I'm finished. Romans chapter 9, verse 30, and watch where Paul goes with this. Romans 9 and verse 30. 
What shall we say then? I like this. I like how he asks questions to get you to think. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have amazingly, we have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of? But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained it to the law of righteousness. Wherefore? Why? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. They tried by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. You know who that is? That's Jesus. You say, man, every time I try to give the gospel, people get offended. That's because that's him. I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever, woo, that's me, believeth on him, on Jesus, shall not be ashamed. You know how I know you're saved? You're not ashamed to pick up a gospel track. You're not ashamed of being known as a Christian. You go to work on Monday morning, everybody else is talking filthy about everything that's going on on Saturday, and you happen to, <clears throat> well, I was in church. <laughs> and they all laugh, and they all walk away from you, and you say, yes. Because if you're a believer on Jesus Christ, you're not ashamed. Amen. You imagine being married. Jordan, you imagine being married one day and you go to work and somebody says, you married? And you go, oh, no, I'm not married. <laughs> Don't want you to think that of me. I'm still single, footloose, and free. But if you're married, that'd be, a, that'd be bad. Amen. If you didn't want to brag on being married. Amen. And how can you be saved and not brag on that? Gentiles become righteous. Paul says, Gentiles who are not righteous, who don't keep the law, who don't know how to climb that ladder of law after law after law. We, Paul says, have reached and touched God. We have attained. We've, we've been pardoned while Israel has fallen short. There's only two reasons. Because the Jews sought it by efforts. If you ever met a Pharisee walking down the street in Jesus' day, that Jew would carefully walk so he wouldn't get his feet dirty. He wouldn't even come within a certain number of feet around somebody who he considered to be a sinner. He carried around a little box on his forehead, had a bit of scripture in him, had scripture on his right arm. He wore layer upon layer of blessed and holy cloth. And um, uh, he would go around quoting scripture all day long, singing to himself. He would, he would eat only certain types of food. If he got given a gift, he would take one-tenth of it, make sure that was tithe. He was amazingly precise. And Jesus said, you better have righteousness greater than them. And that righteousness that all of us can get is the righteousness of faith. Do you know who I have? what I have to do? Is trust somebody who did everything perfect. I trust his righteousness. I trust Jesus Christ. Everything he did is given to me as a gift. It's called salvation. They sought it by their efforts and they fell constantly. And you know the second thing they did? Paul says, and they stumbled at a stumbling stone. God gave a savior to, to Israel and Israel didn't like it. Now, if you've ever walking down the road and you trip on a stone, what do you think of that stone? Who put that stone there? <laughs> that, that stupid stone almost made me Break my face, you know. I mean, I almost broke my arm and all this stuff. You're angry at the stone. And God said, I put that stone there. And I tripped you. And yeah, you may be offended by him and you may be upset at him, but that's my rock. And the only reason why I'm saved is because 
I don't seek salvation. I don't seek heaven. I don't seek God by my own efforts anymore. I seek him by faith. I just trust Jesus Christ. And when I stumbled, when I got upset at the fact that this book called me a sinner, when I got upset at the fact that Jesus is my judge and that I'm going to have to face him and I will lose. But if I cry out to him and ask him to save me, I found out that stumbling stone became my rock of salvation. And when God, and if you've never been brought low, if you've never been brought to the place of repentance where you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. You know what that is? That's a person who's tripped. That's a person who's on their face and said, you know, God, you got me. You win. And if you're ever on your face crying out, God, have mercy on me and save me. That's when you get saved. If you're standing up like that Pharisee and in Luke chapter 18, praying thus with himself, I'm glad I'm not like other men, you'll go straight to hell. But if you'll cry out and say, Lord, you, you, you offended me. You got me upset. That pastor really rubbed me the wrong way. But it turned out for good because you got me to realize I need Jesus. Amen. Who only asked for me to believe and only trust in Christ. That's Paul's whole point in this. Jew or Gentile, righteous or unrighteous, trust Christ and you can be saved. Don't be like the religious Jews. Humble yourself. You know, some of you haven't humbled yourself for 40 years. Maybe you repented when you got saved, but you haven't said you're sorry to God ever since. You don't come to God and say, Lord, I'm a mess. I need help. Just stay that way, man. Don't ever get this way ever again. You're in by the grace of God. Boy. Stay soft, stay close, because it's worth it, folks. It's absolutely breathtaking. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and guess what will happen? You'll be saved. Stand with me. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, I know I covered a lot of ground. I just know that we're in a war. We're in a war of confusion and of self-righteousness. We're full of it. And in Paul's day, there was such animosity of the Jews against, believing Jews against these Gentiles and the Gentiles looking down on the believing Jews. And there was everybody thinking that God's all done with each one of them and they're just destroying one another. They're divided. And it's wrong that we carry that on in the 21st century. We got to realize, we got to realize you've been working out a plan and it's by grace that anybody's saved. And you have not replaced Israel any more than you, than you could ever lie. There's going to come a time where Israel as a nation is going to be saved. I hope it's soon. My prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Amen. But I just, Lord, I just pray right now in this group, somebody would get saved. But somebody realized that you've been working everything in their life, maybe humbling them, getting them so fed up with trying to keep the laws and trying to keep good and trying to reach perfection and failing every time. Would you please help them to see it's over. The war is over. <laughs> Jesus won the war and invites anyone and everyone, doesn't matter who you are, to finally just crowd to him and say, save a wretch like me. Lord, it'll be proven we will not be ashamed. We will shout and 
glorify God who reached down in mercy on sinners like us. And then Lord will carry it to the ends of the earth. We'll realize it wasn't supposed to stop with us. As we go into chapter 10, I pray we realize we need to be soul winners. We need to witness to everybody, no matter who they are. And we need to see people saved. God, this is not church. This is Christianity. This is lives that are lived so that the lost get found. I pray that you just burden us and say, Lord, you got me. Can you use me to get someone else now? In Jesus' name, amen.